with me to the book of Luke. There should be a blue Bible in the chair in front of you if you do not have a Bible. And Luke is found in the New Testament. In case you're not aware of this, the the Bible has two major divisions. There is the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament is about the back third of the Bible. And the first couple of books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke. So you'll be finding Luke with us. And we're in Luke chapter 4, picking up at verse 31. Luke 4, verse 31. Now I'm sure you're familiar with the, the phenomenon that has come with social media, the phenomenon called going viral. Uh, as a term suggests, it is a rapid uh, spread of personal exposure. And they've likened it to a viral spread because of how quickly it happens. I mean, only in the age of internet and social media can someone become uh, an international phenomenon by either making a crank phone call or doing a photo that goes horribly wrong or running through a park shirtless. I mean, you can imagine this, right? You can imagine what it would be like to go through this dynamic. It would be both a blessing and a curse. I mean, the, uh, the positive side of going viral is the opportunities that this, this exposure brings. For example, you maybe have heard of the homeless opera singer, uh, Emily Zamorka, who recently landed a record deal as she captured the hearts of subway riders in Los Angeles and, and someone filmed her and that went on to the internet. And now she has been offered a deal with Grammy-nominated producer Joel Diamond. But there's also a dark side to going viral. One writer says it like this, sometimes going viral is as serious and horrific as the process it borrows its name from. Sometimes condolences are more in order than congratulations. And we know why that can be. People can be cruel. They can say awful things. They can also be fickle, right? Just as quickly as you were known by everyone, you can be, once again, unknown by everyone. Now we see something like this in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that I want to suggest to you this morning is that fame and the quick spread of fame presents a danger. It presents a danger to those going viral. It would present a danger to you and me. It presents a danger to Jesus as he is going about his mission. In Luke 4.14, it says that a report was spreading through the countryside, right? And we noted last week that that word report has to do with the rapid spread of fame. Now, why might fame be dangerous? Well, I would suggest to you that one of the dangers of fame is the danger of rejection. And we saw this take place in Nazareth. Jesus preached his gospel, and when that gospel conflicted with their consensus, common sense beliefs, they were ready to throw him off of a cliff. But equally dangerous, maybe even more dangerous than rejection, I would say is the threat of acceptance. 
Now, you might be asking yourself the question, I mean, why would that be a threat to anyone? Isn't acceptance the one thing that we're all looking for in this world? I just want people to accept me. And wouldn't Jesus want people to accept His ministry? Well, we're going to take a look at that this morning, and we're going to see that it all depends on what and how people are accepting you. So to gain insight in this, we're going to move from Nazareth and we're going to follow Jesus to Capernaum. You'll see there in verse 31 that the the text tells us that he went down to Capernaum, which was in Galilee. Now, Capernaum was a city of about 1,500 people. Remember Nazareth, about 400 people. Jesus is the hometown hero there. He's now moved to this bigger city center that has more uh, going on within it. It's a, a center of trade, of agriculture, of fishing. Now, it's not an affluent place. It's not like going to the heart of the world like Rome during this time. But it would very much be a place to set up a headquarters for a grassroots movement if you were going to start one. And so, the text tells us he was teaching them on the Sabbath, verse 32, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now, how does fame spread? How does this happen? Well, the people in Capernaum and this surrounding region have never seen anything like Jesus. He doesn't just teach the people. It says he astonishes them. He gets up in front of a room of people. He begins to speak. He has a command of the room. People are hanging on to his every word. And he's clear. And he's convicting. You walk away from one of Jesus' message, messages and you don't say to yourself, oh boy, what was he talking about this morning? I think we've all walked out of sermons like that before. <laughs> or they weren't saying to themselves, looking at their watches, oh, when is he going to get done? And I have to say, I've probably done that to you a time or two, and I apologize for that. But not Jesus. Jesus spoke, and the crowds were wrapped in attention. And one of the things that, that held them was the fact that he spoke with authority. Now, authority most basically means to exercise power. There was a power to Jesus' teaching and to His ministry. He had a a supernatural power. And this is really what authority means. To give orders. To make decisions. And to enforce obedience. Now you might be asking yourself the question, authority over whom or authority over what? And as you make your way through the Gospel of Luke, we are going to see that Jesus has authority over everything. There's not one square inch of the universe that Jesus doesn't lay claim to and say, mine. But in the text this morning, we'll see He shows His authority over the spiritual realm, the physical realm, and over teaching the Word of God. So let's go to that first display of authority. The scene picks up in the synagogue where Jesus is teaching. 
Uh, What is he teaching this morning? We're not told, but maybe he's teaching the same message that he preached in Nazareth where he was addressing those who were poor, those who were captive, those who were blind, those who were oppressed. He was preaching a liberating message of freedom. And in the middle of this message that he's giving, a man stands up and cries out with a loud voice, Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Verse 34. The NIV better translates that particle, ha, to say, go away. Go away, he yells. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now this demon is speaking on behalf of the spiritual realm when he says, what do you have to do with us? This is a power struggle. You have to understand that Jesus' effectiveness as a communicator, preaching the Word of God, does not sit well with the enemy. We've all seen what happens when someone who has had power begins to lose that power. They don't let go of the grip very easily, do they? For a moment, I would like for us to go down a sanctified rabbit trail. Now, I won't do these often. Um, I do believe that you should permit me from time to time to take you down rabbit trails. It's always a good thing to do. Now, we must ask ourselves this question, do I have a category in my worldview for this conversation that's taking place right now in Luke? Do you have a category for it? And what that really means is, do you believe that Jesus is talking to a demon? Do you believe that demons exist? Do you believe that demons are operating in the world today? I think those are important questions. Now, if this is all just mythical hyperbole, well then, really, we can just move on. It's not that big of a deal. They're saying that it really doesn't take place in the world all, but there is one big problem. It does greatly undermine the authority of the Scriptures because the Bible's not presenting this as myth, and it turns Jesus into something far less than what he is being presented as by Luke. He's just basically a good moral teacher who got people whipped up. But, if this is not myth, then we have an entirely different issue on our hands. We must recognize that there are powers, authorities, realities that are beyond our physical senses. And these powers and authorities have the ability to disrupt, even harm us. And so if that's true, then we discount them We ignore them at our own peril. I've heard it said like this, even if you don't believe in Satan, he believes in you. I was recently reading a story from Jim Cimbala. He was writing this in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And he tells the story of a girl who came forward in the front of church in a daze. As she was coming down the aisle to the front of the church to be ministered to, there was a check in the spirit of the pastors who were waiting to receive this young girl. As soon as the name of Christ was mentioned, the small girl lunged, grabbed Simbala by the throat, lifted him up, and body-slammed him onto the stage front platform. 
And inside, from deep down within, a hideous voice said, you'll never have her. She's ours. Get away from her. Obscenities came. The team prayed over the girl. They prayed intensely in the name of Jesus. And thank God she was set free. And she became a member of the church. Now friends, I could tell you dozens of stories that I've heard like this. I remember processing an experience where I had actually seen a demon come out of a woman and I was speaking to a, a, a girl who grew up in Trinidad and then did ministry in the inner city of Chicago and I said to her, have you ever seen anything like that before? And she said, yeah, we see these kind of things all the time. I didn't even have a category for it at that time. We deny the reality of Satan and his forces to our own peril. Paul told us in Ephesians 6.12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood and enemies, but against evil rulers and unseen forces, uh, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Are you, you hearing what he's saying there? That Satan is he's organized, he's structured, it's a well-oiled machine, and he is what? Determined. Because why? He hates everything that God considers good, which includes you. Now that could sound like a very frightful message. But here's the hope. Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm, which means Jesus has authority over Satan. I want you to look at the next part of the text with me. Look at how he commands this spirit in verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Friends, I just want to submit to you this morning that that's what real authority looks like. Two phrases. Be still. Come out, and what happens? The demon is immediately overpowered. There are no complicated chants. There's no holy water and crosses. This is just the raw exercise of authority. And the people notice that. Verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they what? Come out. Well, as tends to happen when something over the top, something we're not used to experiencing like this happens, you are compelled to leave that place and start going, going and telling everybody. Uh, as Jesus is transitioning to a Sunday lunch, everybody is going out and they're getting on their social devices and they are tweeting, they're posting videos on Facebook and Instagram, and this is starting to go out everywhere. But we don't watch all of that happen. We walk with Jesus to a friend's house. Now, here's the deal. Uh, Baptists were not the first to invent the after-church meal. We are just the ones who perfected it. Just as many of us go and eat with others after church, and I, I do hope that you do that from time to time, that you grab other believers at church, maybe someone you don't know, and you invite them out to a meal. 
Just as we do something like that, Jesus was invited to a home of a man who started following him early on. His name was Simon, uh, who we know to be Good job, good job. Right, Peter, the name given to him by Jesus. Now, we can assume that Peter was not aware that his hospitality would be less than ideal when he arrived at home. This is a very important part of this culture. Uh, Hospitality, the way that you looked in terms of how you served other people was a big deal. And we can all relate to this, right? <laughs> We've had people come to our house and things didn't go as planned. Like, for example, you forget to unthaw the turkey the night before, or you put the cheesy potatoes in the ovens and they burn beyond recognition, or, you know, that one time when the house wasn't quite clean and they arrived 15 minutes early, you heard the knock on the door and you start stuffing everything into that one room, and you're walking down the stairs saying to the kids, I swear if anyone brings anybody into that room, you're going to be in big trouble this morning. Or this evening. Now this is all just a little pastoral nudge to say this. Imperfect hospitality is much better than no hospitality. That's right. Everything doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to show people that you care about them by serving them. Well, Peter experienced this moment. In verse 38, it tells us that he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law was ill with high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. Now Luke is specific here. He gives us those physician, those details that only a physician could give. He says that the fever is high. You know the difference between that low-grade fever where you can still function and that 104-degree Fahrenheit fever where you're underneath four blankets and you're still shivering uncontrollably. And in this case, this is pre-Tylenol days, right? This is the days when a fever like this could quickly turn deadly. And so they're no longer concerned about the hospitality of the home. They're concerned about the health of the mother-in-law. And so they turn to Jesus. Now, they must have seen displays of power that led them to believe that he had authority, that he could, what, give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience over the physical realm. And that's what he does. They're not disappointed. Look at verse 39. It says, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now that word in verse 39, rebuked, circle that word. It is the same word used when Jesus sternly commands the demon to leave and the demon obeys. Just as casually as a man yells at the children in a home like this to stop screaming all over the place and the children quiet down hopefully, Jesus commands this illness And then he casually sits down and has lunch with the family. What happens next is what we call a good old-fashioned mob, right? Verse 40 and 41, When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they know 
that he was the Christ. Friends, this is what acceptance looks like, isn't it? People are convinced of Jesus' authority now. They've seen miracles that have taken them over the edge to believe that He can speak to demons and it happens. He can say things to physical infirmities and it happens. They're hobbling to Him. People are carrying other people to Him. People are willing to walk for hours just to get into His presence without any thought of where they are going to be sleeping that night. And they're coming in droves just to be touched by Jesus just to be healed by Jesus, just to be set free by Jesus. And even, even the demons are getting involved. They're saying, you are the Son of God. And Jesus responds to them authoritatively and says, what? Stop talking. And they stop talking. <laughs> well, why wouldn't you want the demons to tell everybody and ver verify who you are? Well, think of it like this. If you had the most important message in all of history, past, present, and future, do you want demons on your public relations team? <laughs> no, not me, not Jesus. Well, this viral spread of Jesus' fame moves from general acceptance. Everyone's excited about Jesus. They're excited about the things that he can do to more now of a, a controlling expectation. Look at verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. Do you see what's happening? They're caught up in the wonder. Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to us. He, he can make miracles happen. He can do things that we've never seen before. He talks better than those guys in those TED Talk videos. We accept him. We accept him. But, but, what is implied here is we accept him for those reasons. You see, Jesus will not accept that kind of acceptance. Let me say that one more time. Jesus will not accept that kind of acceptance. He's a great teacher. He's the greatest exorcist who has ever lived. He's the greatest miracle worker, but he's also much more than all of those things, and he offers something much grander than all of those things. And Jesus, in this moment, is careful not to be swept up in the viral flood. And we see this all over the Gospels. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there's a time where John makes explicit to us that Jesus refuses to get caught up in the flood. John 2.23, the New Living Translation, it says this, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in Him. But Jesus didn't trust them because He knew all about people. And what did he know? He knows that we can be accepting and attracted to the wrong things. We can be won over by the miracles, but not necessarily compelled by the message. We can get caught up in the smaller gifts, such as the healing of a major disease, but the larger gift we might feel is unnecessary, the salvation of our soul. 
Now notice what he says to this crowd. He says, I must preach. Do you remember that word must? We said it was the Greek particle day, and I was like, you're never going to forget that word again. Do you remember how that's going to play pivotal roles as we make our way through the gospel of Luke? I must. I'm compelled. There's a divine compulsion. Preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Now, as I look at this verse, I see two very, very important implications that intersect with our world. The first implication is this. It's the gospel. You see, you might remember this, uh, and maybe you don't, and maybe you don't care. But back in 1992, when Bill Clinton was running for president, there was a campaign sign in his headquarters that said this, it's the economy. What? Stupid. And it was a pretty good campaign sign because the point was simple. Don't lose focus on the issue that tends to sway the American voter. And it was quite successful. He was able to actually unseat an incumbent president, which if you look at American politics and history, that does not happen very often. Now, I wish every church in America would post a similar message, big glaring letters somewhere in the church, highly visible where you could see it. It's the gospel, stupid. I know you can't say things like that. I know that that would offend everyone, but maybe I don't understand that because I just said it. But the point is clear. Don't lose sight of what leads to a gospel revolution. Jesus understood this with a level of intense focus that was unmatched. He did not shift from a preaching ministry to a healing and demon exercising ministry, even though that's what was drawing the crowds. And you can imagine the temptation, the smaller gifts drawing the crowds. The smaller gifts do not cause people to try to throw you off of a cliff. But the smaller gifts can do nothing to save a single individual from their sins. I'm going to put up a principle on the screen. Never forget this one. What you win them by is what you win them to. I want you to write that one down. I want you to think about that one. I want you to pray about that one. What you win them by is what you win them to. If you win them by highly emotional services where the main emphasis of the service is ecstatic experience, is calling people forward and anointing them with oil and praying that God would heal them, that's what you're winning them to. If you're winning them, uh, or in, if you are winning them by creating uh, that, that easy, non-embracive environment that's user-friendly, that says something along the lines of like, we're church, but we're not church, or we're not the normal kind of church. We're a church where you can just be you. You're winning them to that. Or if it's the band that's on the stage, or if it's the preacher's hair, or if it's the fact that he can make you laugh uh, at the moments you're supposed to laugh and, and cry in the moments where you're supposed to cry, you're winning them to that. 
So what happens when all those things go away and only the gospel remains? Do the people stay? You see, Jesus knows that only gospel one followers are real followers. The question that we must always ask ourselves as a believer is this, is it the gospel and the gospel alone that keeps me coming? Or do I follow Jesus because I was hooked on some smaller gift? Second implication, I must preach to others. The crowd was essentially saying this to Jesus. Jesus, you need to be Capernaum's preacher and miracle worker. I mean, who can blame them? He is an incredible teacher. He is doing incredible things. But basically what they're saying is this, Jesus, we want to keep you to ourselves. And friends, we do that. We want to keep Jesus to ourselves. We might quietly wish that church is a comfortable space. We may be fine with people coming along as long as they think like us, act like us, maybe even look like us. We might quietly want to keep all of the resources of the church within our four walls. And I have to tell you that I have honestly struggled with this. I mean, I think about the growing de-Christianization of New England and the country that I was born into and the country that I love. And we've heard this statistic. Something like here in Barnstable, Yarmouth, 2% of people would identify as evangelical. We know that there's not enough churches. I was just having a conversation with Tim Ponzani, the district executive minister with Converge for the Northeast, he said that he was speaking to a pastor in New Hampshire who is a lone church surrounded by 48 towns where there is no gospel presence. I mean, there's no church, no preaching of the gospel taking place. And you know what I think, and, and I'm ashamed to say this when I hear things like that, I want to keep all the resources here. We're the mission field. We need to keep our people. We need to keep our resources. But do you remember what we saw in that video a couple of weeks ago? 72% of missionaries are going to the most reached parts of the world. 72%. We also looked at the giving and we saw that that was a high number. And then we looked at the part of the world that was least reached. This is the part, people in the world who don't even know that there's a Jesus to be believed in. 1% of total Christian giving, and, th and that entails Christians give about 2% of their income, which is a, doesn't make me very happy. You know, I'm not excited about that. But of all of that income, only 1% of that income is going to those people who don't even know that there's a Jesus to be believed in. You know what Jesus says to this? You must go preach to them. Don't forget about home. Preach the gospel here. But we must not keep Jesus for ourselves. Friends, you know what this means with the church? The church has to become something different than it presently is. We can no longer be a cruise ship. We have to become an aircraft carrier. 
People have to come into the church to be filled up in order to go out and tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're going to shift the analogy just a little bit to an army, everybody within the church must be on active duty. There are no more honorable discharges in the Christian army. There should be no more people who are just in reserves. There should be no more armchair generals in Christianity who like the idea of war, but don't actually like performing the application of war. Every Christian soldier must do their part. So as Harry asked several weeks ago, I ask again, what's your part? What is yours? As we close this message down, I want to close with one final thought. You see, the second implication, we must go to others, means very little if we have not embraced the first implication. It's the gospel. Have you accepted Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus? And the next question is, and how have you accepted Jesus? I think we can think of it like this. We, we all know how poorly and all the problems that would be entailed with a money marriage, right? Imagine, for example, there's a man and he has a relative who is vastly wealthy. And this relative says to this man, in three years' time, I'm going to give you a portion of my wealth. I will give you $100 million dollars. Now, in that span of time, while the man is waiting for that money, he also meets the love of his life, the girl of his dreams. He tells her about his good fortunes. They date. She accepts his request to marriage. And as the time's leading up for the marriage, imagine that that wealthy relative loses all of the money in a bad investment. Now, there's not a single penny left. The only thing that that man can now offer is himself for the marriage. If his fiancée was in the relationship only for the money, what would she do? She'd say, bye-bye. I'm going to go get back on the Christian Mingle dating service. How have you accepted Jesus did you accept him because you believed that trusting Jesus meant less problems, more blessings, no suffering? What is going to happen, what will happen when you begin to face problems in this world because we live in a sin-sick world or you don't receive whatever you meant or thought in your mind that blessings meant at the time or, or you experience suffering? You might respond like that fiancé responded. So the only real way to come to Jesus is to come to Jesus on his terms through the gospel. And the gospel tells us this, that, that you are far more sinful than you could have ever imagined. But God is more loving and gracious than you could ever hope for. God came to us in the person of Jesus. He lived the life that you couldn't live, a perfect, righteous life. And then he died on the cross for your sins. Uh, the phrase that you should never forget, this is the core of the gospel, he died in my place. 
That's the glorious reality of the gospel. And the Bible says this, if you, if you believe, if you trust, if you put the weight of your confidence and, and worldview into that reality that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, the Bible says you will be saved. Friends, this gospel is better than $100 million. This gospel is better than a fun church experience that doesn't make you feel weighted down a little bit. This gospel is better than healing of life-threatening diseases. This gospel is better because it encompasses all of eternity. It encompasses the very core of who you were made to be. So my question to you is, have you accepted Jesus on those terms? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment and chemo and the team?